0: Welcome to another episode of the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent, and I got a classic show for y'all today. I'm going to be real with the audience. This show was supposed to air on season two, but I just had to share today, honestly, because I messed up, I was supposed to be doing the last episode, I was going to get I'm going to get Travis Jackson, the CEO of HBCU Pride Nation, to actually turn the table and and interview me so I can share kind of my story, the first season takeaways from the podcast, and answer any questions, but I wasn't able to do that, so I didn't want to lie with with y'all, so I, I was scrambling, I was scrambling, I said, boom, I got it, I got it, this guest is going to be amazing, going to add a lot of value. I didn't want to share it on season one, but I had to share it on season one, and I've been hearing your requests. I've been getting the request to come on the show. I'm definitely getting back to everybody, and I can't wait to share the new additions we have to the whole production of this thing for season two. Quick house notes before I get into the intro. One, we have just passed 7,500 downloads which is freaking phenomenal. Like, to not have a celebrity host. I'm not a celebrity host. I'm not have all this. We just organic growth through people like yourself that are listening, that are tuning in, that are sharing with your friends. So I appreciate it. Continue to do that. Please, please, please. Second, and I always harp on it, and I'm going to continue harping on it. Please, if you haven't already, leave a review. It really helps us on iTunes. If you're listening via SoundCloud, and you like what you're hearing, follow us on SoundCloud. So we can just continue to provide great content. So that's all I really have to say. Thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. All your support. I mean, it started from November 25th. And they go to March 3rd. And we've had over 7,500 downloads. That means 7,500 people have listened to these podcasts. And I'm getting emails. I'm getting Twitter. I'm getting Instagram. Everybody's adding me. Showing what they love about the show. Maybe some improvements. And I just love the engagement. So... Let me jump right in to the show. I'm excited to introduce today's featured guest, man. I've known this brother since freaking seven years since he first came to North Carolina A&T State University, man, Um, legit guy. Let me just just take a a, a little sneak peek into his bio, which is crazy, right? He's the first student ever from North Carolina A&T to receive the prestigious Fulbright scholarship. He's currently pursuing his PhD at the University of Southern California in computer science with focus on artificial intelligence he holds a master's degree in robotics from the university of birmingham in england through a fulbright postgraduate award and he attained his bachelor's of science degree in computer engineering and a minor in philosophy which i didn't even know from north carolina anti-state university and during college i mean he worked as the, the president of the beta epsilon period chapter of alpha phi Alpha fraternity corporate shout out to the bros he also served on the Chancellor's Academic Review Commission, Regional Board of the National Society of Black Engineers. And during the summer breaks in college, he conducted research in robotics at the University of Michigan and Carnegie Mellon. His first internship post-grad from University of Birmingham was with NASA, Jet Propulsion Pack in Florida, NASA. <laughs> and ultimately, he plans to obtain a doctorate degree in robotics and use his expertise to build a comprehensive robot program The impacts in the city youth. I mean, I say all that to say, and guess what? I know reading that volume, I'm like, man, it's probably like 34, 40. This guy's only 25 years old. It doesn't make any sense. So, without further ado, I would like to introduce my brother, my Fulbright scholar. I hope you hear the energy in my voice. I'm excited. This this, this episode is going to be life changing. I would like to introduce Emmanuel Johnson to the Minority Trollblazer podcast. Mm. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you for having me on. <laughs> man, I'm glad you're here, man. So I know you, you're familiar with the show, but to all new listeners to the Minority Trailblazer podcast, we always start the show off with a quote, and I'm gonna put it in the hands of a uh, man. I'm just gonna call him man in this interview, Manny, to give us a quote that he lives by and share a story about how he uses that quote in his everyday life.
1: Um so the quote that I live by is uh is one from Henry Longfellow and it goes the heights by great men reached and kept were not obtained through sudden flight, but they while their companions slept were toiling upwards through the night. And I think that really embodies what I do on a daily basis, you know, where I look at success and where I want to reach is not something that's gonna happen sporadically, but it's something that I have to constantly put forth the effort while everybody else may be out having fun enjoying life you know kind of cutting down on that wasted time
0: can you tell us maybe a specific story where um you use that principle like what if you could pinpoint a night or a day where there was a lot of stuff going on that was great stuff you could have a lot of fun but you like yo sticking to your principles you know th- what i'm doing right now is much more important can you, can you share a story like that
1: I mean, I, I would say it even now, and it's not necessarily, you know, kind of look on having fun in a bad way, but uh-huh. um, when you look at the fact that I'm in a PhD program where right now I'm looking at a lot of my friends who I went to undergrad with um, have, you know, nice jobs, nice houses, nice personal items, but as a graduate student, you know, you're not getting paid much, but you're you're constantly grinding, spending um, 10, 12 hours days working on a research project, whereas... A lot of people, you know, are waking up every day, going to work, coming home, and they're having that free time to do what they want.
0: I read your, a, a, a bit of your bio. I highlighted North Carolina and T. I mean, when dude walked across the stage with all these tassels, I've never seen so many outside of a, a brother i know by jonathan mccoy i've never seen as many tassels as i have on mandy when he walked across the stage i mean working for nasa carnegie met like when i say university of michigan university of carnegie mellon these are some of the top institutions of robotics and what they do in their field and i mean it's, it's kind of amazing it's like to stand back and see at 25 he's able to do and accomplish that many things full bright scholar crazy but you, you already know this show, we dig deep into personal stories. So we're going to transition into our, our first round. And if you're new to the show, our show is broken up into three parts. The past, where we showcase our, our interview guests. We showcase where he come from, his past, and how we got to where he is today. The second part is the present. So he shares kind of what he's working on, the projects, and gives actionable advice for those that are looking to get into his field, some tips. And then the third part of the show is the future round where he shares what's his future look like as far as since 2016, as well as even beyond, way beyond. So, And at the end, we also have the exciting culture change round, so stay tuned for that. So back to the point, we're going to dig into your personal background, man. Can you share with the audience where you come from and who you are?
1: All right, man. That's that's a that's a that's a big question. Um, so, so a little bit about my background. I was originally born in uh, Monrovia, Liberia. Um, came to the U.S. when I was eight years old in January 1999. Um, we came as refugees because at that time there was a civil war going on in Liberia, which started in 89 until like 2003. So came came here, grew up in. Trenton, New Jersey. Um, I ended up graduating from high school in in New Brunswick, New Jersey. You know, went to A Hold T after A. Wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. We got to dig. I ain't gonna let you slide, man. So, in high school, tell us about your time in high school, man. Because I know your story very well, man. So, tell us about your time at high school, your grades, and kind of that that transition into North Carolina A and T. All right, cool. So, I
1: ended up going to three different high schools. Um, and you know, early on in high school. Academ- academics wasn't something I really focused on, man. I really just kind of went into school to hang out with my boys, man, and w- wasn't really focused. When I grad, when I finished my sophomore year, I had a two point three GPA. In high school, you know, yeah, yeah, in high school, but the- my sophomore year, I had a two point three, man. All, oh, you know, the- and to kind of be very, very transparent, man, all I-, all I really did was just kind of I was a class clown, you know, made fun, um, got into trouble here and there. And, you know, school wasn't something that really mattered to me. And I I don't think I really had teachers who pushed me or saw anything special in me, you know, to the point where I think I remember trying to talk to somebody about my future goals and wanting to go to college. And they told me to be realistic, you know. Um, So, yeah, man, that was kind of like the starting point Um, towards the end of high school. I kind of got back on the ball, realized that college was something I wanted to do. And um, I remember vividly it was this SAT class I took towards the end of my sophomore year. And I remember sitting in there and barely being able to read the prompt or, or finish the math problem and feeling so dumb. And it was at that point in my life that I vowed that, you know, from that point forward, I never put myself in a position for somebody else to make me feel that stupid. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, and, and that was kind of like the initial driving force to just be able to be at a level where I was in the stock of the group.
0: Mm-hmm. And how'd you made that transition going into your junior and senior year? Even though, because from what I know, at, what did you graduate your senior year of high school with? Uh, a 2.9. So a 2.9. So you made a, a couple changes, but still, you still graduated with a 2.9. So walk us through how you, with a 2.9, and your transition to A&T, because I know especially, yeah, talk us to that and, and especially the financial piece of coming to A&T and affording college.
1: A lot, of, a lot of this started my junior year. As I said, you know, I went to three different high schools. When I was a junior, I
0: was at Willingborough High School.
1: And um, that was the first year I decided to take academics serious and I wanted to pursue a degree in computer engineering. And um, at the time, I didn't have the grades. You know, um, I, had to, I took my first programming class with uh, Mr. Merrill and so i come into the class 3 weeks late i ended up having the highest grade in the class towards the end of the semester and you know he he looks at me and he says um it seems like you have a, a natural skill for it and i said man sit in front of a computer all day programming? Nah, that's not something i want to do <laughs> um, and and even with the grades when he told me i could look into that i said i told him hey i don't have the grades for it and he put me in touch with this guy at the new jersey institute of technology that was that was originally where I, where i was thinking I was going ahead and um, I used to have to go to these seminars once a month and basically I would drive an hour up you know t- to this guy office shake his hand sit through the same presentation and go back home and the reason why I did this was he told me if I was able to show my dedication to wanting to go to this university um, they had this program called equal opportunity program which is for students in New Jersey from underprivileged background to get access to college so I used to do that all the time and that's where I started to learn about what college entails, scholarships, and what I needed to do to apply, as well as begin to build that um, rapport with them. My senior year, I transferred to New Brunswick High School, and I met uh, Mr. William Lewis Dunbar, who was an English teacher. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first day I walked into his class, I was it's this old guy that has a koofy on, and he's like, <laughs> yeah, man, I'm like, whoa, we got a, man, I'm looking at him like, man, we got a military general, <laughs> old school military guy teaching us English you know, we walk in and the first thing he says, he says the name of the game is money. And his thing was trying to get us the most amount of money that we can to go to school. And upon speaking to him in the first couple of days, he's told me, you know, if you're serious about this, meet me every morning at six in the morning and we'll go through all of this. Mm-hmm. So throughout my senior year, I would come in, literally wake up every morning at five, be at the school at six, working on scholarship application, essays, and all of that and um, he was the one that actually took me down to uh, visit North Carolina A&T because he, he used to have a HBCU tour mm-hmm. and, and it was through that process that I started to understand what it took to win money in school and he, he helped me find the initial funds that I needed to go to undergrad because my grades were so low most schools either didn't accept me or when they accepted me they didn't provide any financial aid so when I was going down to a and I didn't qualify for most of the scholarship mm-hmm. so I literally based on help that I received from New Brunswick, especially New Brunswick Education Foundation and Mr. William Lewis Dunbar, you know, I had enough money to go down there for one semester. Mm -hmm. Um, I took out a few loans as well as uh, local scholarships, but I didn't know how I was going to finish off my four years. I ended up getting into NJIT and it would have been from a financial standpoint Being a Jersey resident, it would have been a lot easier to go that route. But there was something about North Carolina Auntie that really captured me. Although I didn't have the money, I took that chance. And after my first semester, I had a 4.0. And I still can't find money to go to school. And and, and
0: I'm going to interject real quick because it's crazy. I still remember to this day, I was in the library. I think it was my junior junior year or senior year. I don't don't remember. And I don't know how we bumped into each other. I think through Mitchell Brown or something like that. Exactly. And, exactly. you, and yep. you told me your story. I was like, this is, and I, I barely knew you from anything. You told me a lot about your story. And I was like, bro, you got a 4.0 from, you graduated high school from a 2.9. First semester, an engineer had a 4.0 and you still could not find any money. You said, I don't really know how. And I remember before leaving the, um, the library, I like, bro, I really don't know how I'm going to get this money or whatever but we're gonna make a way and then kind of yeah so share how did you make that way because it's like your first semester you had a 2.9 in high school first semester banging out 4.0 but you still are coming up short so explain like how did how how did you get the money
1: so it was two things that happened um well one i I went and spoke with one of my at that time i was a double major and i spoke with one of my department chair one of the things that he told me was that you know for you to be a minority in engineering not have the money to, to continue school it's a problem and his thing was, you need to you need to learn how to find that money to keep going. And then I remember speaking with my mentor from high school, and it's it's interesting because I call him and I'm, and I'm breaking down on the phone. Like man, you know, I followed your 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 instructions. I'm here. I don't got I have the money, and he and all he told me was, you know, make it happen. And he hung up. the phone. <laughs> That's all
0: he did. He said just. That's me?
1: all he did. But for me, that was the the driving force to say, you know what, man, now you're on your own. You gotta make it happen. And when I tell you from that point on, I apply for any and every scholarship that I qualify for. And as you start to apply for them, man, you realize that they all want similar things. There's a certain structure to the way they ask your question. There's a certain response that most of these scholarship programs are looking for. So I started I started creating my database of questions that they could ask, answering those questions. had had a, a collection of uh, uh, letters of recommendation from professors. And really started building my profile as well as being actively involved both in a leadership capacity and in in, in, in school in terms of getting good grades and making sure that I was also helping other people.
0: Got you, man. So take us like what changed your mindset from high school to your first your first year in, in college to really kind of think on that level and put in that groundwork because that seemed like you it was a, you were a whole different dude two years ago in high school and then you first got to college and it was just a whole different person. Like if you could like what was the bullet more what was the tipping point to, to making that change to um, kind of where you are because like I said, you come from your family, you migrated to the States at eight years old. You had no model outside of people that came into your life while you were in where you were in high school but you had no nobody to model yourself off so what things did you do to completely change your mindset
1: I think for for me it was a couple of things one you know going through my senior year and having been rejected from so many scholarships so many university made me realize that one you know rejections are going to happen and being that I, I hated being rejected so many times, I didn't want that to happen again. And then two, when you ch- when you change schools as much as I did, you start to realize what's really important. So it's not necessarily trying to attach yourself to a, su- a specific clique or a specific identity, but you realize that knowledge is the only thing that transitions when you move from one place to another because oftentimes that identity that you built in one location may or may not mean anything when you move on. Mm-hmm. So it, so during the end of high school, I started building that, um, that understanding. And then when I, when I came into undergrad, being that I didn't want to fail again, you know, I pushed so hard to be the best that I could. Cause I saw what the end goal can could be in it. Um, based on what I seen with other students, I went to high school with. So for me, man, it, it was, I had this dream and God blessed me with the opportunity that I worked two years for and I didn't want to screw it up so I put everything I had on
0: the table you took you so you took us through high school and and how you changed your life around then T boom first semester got a 4.0 doing it so let's kind of let's kind of fast forward a little bit to senior year and when you're doing the application because what I but most people don't know and hopefully you can share Outside of getting the Fulbright scholarship, and I want you to walk us through that whole process, you did also apply for um, the Rhodes. So kind of if you could share with our audience a little bit about the why you even thought and who, who encouraged you to apply for these scholarships. Because coming from your background and even though you have overcame a lot of obstacles, like what, what encouraged you to apply to the Rhodes and then the Fulbright and then kind of walk us through each?
1: Um. So as I was reaching my junior year in, in undergrad, somebody had put me in touch with the scholarship office. And at the time, um, well, it actually began my sophomore year. I had a I had a professor, uh, Dr. Forsman. He and I were having a casual conversation about what I wanted to do with my life and, um, you know, what I saw th- myself doing after undergrad. And my original idea was to go get an MBA And I remember this vividly in our conversation. He said, you know, if you don't go as far as a Ph.D., you'll be doing yourself an injustice. And I think up until that point, nobody in my life had told me I had the capability to pursue a Ph.D. And just to know that somebody had that much faith in me made me that much more confident. And um, prior to high school, prior to undergrad, I used to follow one of my mentors, not mentors, but one of the people I used to look up to was Dr. Randall Pinkett, and I remember he had a Rhodes Scholar. He was a Rhodes Scholar, and I was like, "Man, if anything, I want to. If he could do it, I could do it." And that was always my mindset. So, coming into my junior and senior year, I started learning about all these different fellowships, and based on my track record, uh, when I was originally introduced to uh, Miss Anna Whiteside in the Honors Program, she thought I qualified for a lot of these programs. And so my mindset was, well, if you if you believe that I will qualify, sure, I'll give it a shot. And um, I applied for the Truman Fellowship, the Goldwater Fellowship, the Rhodes, Marshall and Fulbright. Um, and one of the reasons I applied for a lot of those, one, I had an interest in education and, and education policy in an um, apprivileged community. So that's where the Truman f- fell into place. The Goldwater was just for students who had a solid research and academic background in engineering. So I applied for that. And then I was also interested in getting the international perspective because I knew that in in the long run, I had goals of looking at things from an international perspective. And I thought that these awards would not only afford me the opportunity, but also um, it definitely provides certain access um, and, and, and recognition and notoriety as you travel around and so out of all of those awards that I applied for um I only won one
0: mhm
1: you know so it, and and it's interesting because um when you look at the story now you don't hear about all the other ones that I lost <laughs> you hear about that I won you know so it's it's interesting how one stories are, you know stories are told and, and it always it always baffles me how people um put so much emphasis on on you know not trying but you gotta realize that, man. Sometimes the people that you look at as being successful have failed at so many things, and that's why they're successful. You know, I've man, you don't understand how I many rejection letters I received before I got Fulbright. <laughs>
0: that's because that's crazy. Like, um, kid you not, when I was doing um, my research before this and getting your bio online, Emmanuel Johnson Fulbright, I could see articles all across the web. Uh, you smiling, doing all this stuff, all the accolades and whatnot with the whoop, but during this interview and i already knew this but sharing with the audience that you applied to seven or other eight institutions and in, uh i mean fellowships and got rejected and all and it's not like you were an average student you were the and that's the and that is one thing also i do want you to speak on because i know you're very knowledgeable and observing about it you are one of the best if not the one of the best if not the best student in your in your department at T or one of the more accomplished ones at Ant state university but but you're when you're trying to reach the top of something, there's so many others that are freaking phenomenal. So, can you, so could you speak on from your perspective um, some of the things you kind of realized or that you thought about during the process of applying, and you and you and you kind of internalized within yourself because, as far as like how how big really the world and the competition really is.
1: I mean, I think yeah, you, you really hit on a menace there are some very talented people out here and, and those who will blow you out the water, even if you think you're the best. And I think for me, it's always remaining a humble understanding that the accolades, the, the awards and all of that does not make you who you are is what you do on a consistent basis to develop yourself. Um, and, and a continuous development because, you know, when I was applying for those things, i I'm, I was at the top in the, in the college of engineering at ANT, t but, you know, everybody else who were competing for the same fellowship were at the top in their department in these various universities. So it can... I mean, when you are originally applying, it's like, man, what really gives me the, the right to apply for this? And you start to feel a certain level of inadequacy, but just having been awarded the award and meeting other students, not only do you feel like you belong, but you're also honored just to be around the people that these fellowships and, and opportunity has put you around. And, and that's how I really look at things.
0: That's real, man. And if you could, I want to walk, I want to be in your shoe, in your shoes um, for the time you were at that you're doing, pursuing your, your master's degree and obtaining your master's degree at the university of Birmingham in England with the Fulbright scholarship. Could you walk us through briefly um, the three key things that you learned of learned, and how you've grown during that time, coming from a, a war-torn country to to, to Trenton, Trenton, uh, New Jersey, going to high school, 2.9, A&T, going to a 4.0, then seeing you getting rejected to a lot of stuff, but then finally getting that and then getting the opportunity to see the world at one of the most prestigious colleges and universities. Bring us to that experience. Man, man, <laughs>
1: that's, that's, a heavy, that's a heavy
0: question. I bro. know. Bro.
1: <laughs> I would say the, the biggest... There's a few lessons I've learned. I mean, you know, the British experience was phenomenal. It was eye-opening and had a chance to meet some amazing people from all around the world and develop friendship with people from countries I didn't know much about. And and just that exposure to uh, living in a, a different country, even though I was born outside the U.S., prior, you know, coming into an understanding myself, since coming into an understanding of myself, I haven't really traveled outside the country. So that experience was mind-blowing. And I, when I say, man, I was around some of the most brilliant, talented, well-connected people ever. And they constantly pushed us to be the best that we could. And there was no limitation. You know, if you said you wanted to be the next president of a country, there wasn't anybody that didn't believe in you. And just being in that environment, I was very supportive was, was was beyond phenomenal, man. And, and to be you know, honest, some days, man, I sit back and I look at where, where I've come from and where life has taken me and, and it's surreal, you know. I, I don't really know. Words can't even describe the feeling that, that, that comes to mind. But I think the biggest thing I've learned is that, one, your, your life is going to hit you no matter who you are, no matter what you do, you're going to fail. And it's not about Focusing so much on the failure, but at the same time, you have to acknowledge a failure. I think we have this thing where it's, oh yeah, you know, if, if failure occurs, we we look at it as either something that's going to bring us down and we never get back up, or we try to brush it off and say, so, oh yeah, you know, it's just a part of right, But we don't correct the mistakes that cause that failure. Mm. So what I've come to realize is that you got to not only acknowledge your failure and, and acknowledge what it's trying to tell you. that failures are kind of like the the signals in your body. You know, when you, when you gotta. Um, when something, when your body's dehydrated, you might have a headache. You know, failure is your, is life way of telling you that there's something that you're doing incorrectly that you need to fix. So you know, being able to recognize those signals and adjust and and, and update your strategy to approach future challenges is one. Two, you have to you have to remain humble because one accolades and awards the thing is are are the world's way of validating you right Mm -hmm. and and as the world changes their standards are going to change and by being humble you're grounded within yourself your value of yourself comes from within so you're not latching on to these temporary validation mechanisms. even the most prestigious fellowships that you receive at some point you're going to get to a location where nobody knows about it. There was part of England that I went, nobody knew what a Fulbright fellowship meant. So in that in that environment, I was just Emmanuel Johnson. And being in a country <laughs> where you're by yourself and not a lot of people know who you are, um, gives you that ability to to re humble yourself. You know, winning that Fulbright as the first in, in ANC history, there's a lot of news articles, there's a lot of people around and and, and it's easy to become both for or to get on this pedestal, but going to a country where you're by yourself, although you have other cohort members, and there are circles that understand what you guys have, there are times where nobody really gets it, or nobody understands what an HBCU is, and it's a very humbling thing. So as you remain humble and you ground your happiness and and what you value within yourself, you you are then able to tackle and face whatever realities that life has painted for you at that moment. Um And then last but not least, man, it's, it's really diving deep within to find what your passion is and following your passion no matter what. I think sometimes we get so caught up on the money and the materialistic things that we end up chasing these career paths that we hate, but we, we're stunting for other people. You know, so so these are different things, man. And then also just realizing, man, it's going to be a lot of hard work. It's not It's not about to be easy. But if you follow your passion and you have that, that deep drive for what you do and that deep love, it's going to get you out of whatever hole you
0: may be stuck in. Man, that's, that's powerful. And I'm not even going to pontificate about, and I don't, I don't think I use that word right, but I just wanted to say it. I've been going right. on ahead in a second. <laughs> but about and, and kind of elaborate about what you said because, I mean, all you, all you said is, is, is there, right there. And to your point, I wanted to ask you, what within within that time or within the last four years, what has been your lowest point? And because I, I, I always I, sometimes I frame it as a failure, but I really don't believe in that. But what has been your lowest point? And then kind of share with the audience how you was able to get out of that point.
1: <laughs> I think, man, I, I've actually hit a, hit a few lows you know, <laughs> because like I got seven minutes. It's not a, it's not an easy thing. But I think one of my lowest points was, you know, having one to four break, pursuing my master's, I decided to apply to graduate school, and at the time, I applied to six different graduate schools. Out of the six, I was rejected from five. And That's going, cool. going back to the point originally, you know, you people don't see the, the failures and all of that. So I was rejected from five of them, and the only one I got, I got into at the time was the University of Southern California. And even when I got in, I didn't get into a PhD. I got into the master's program, so it, it kind of hit hard because um, I had I had put forth my best effort, did everything that I could, but yet again, I was still getting denied. And it was it was at that point I had to. It's, it's easy to give other people advice, but sometimes it's hard to take your own advice. Ooh. So at that point in time, you know, I had to kind of sit back and think about my life up until this this point, you know, because I started to beat myself down, I started to feel like, man, maybe I'm just not qualified, maybe I'm not this, maybe I'm not that, but or and, and on the other side, I could have said, well, you know, these schools just don't see talent, yada, 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 or, you know, I'm the best person for this, but I had to take take a step back and see, okay, what were my flaws, and what was this failure telling me about what I needed to work on, as well as saying, you know what, just because they reject you does not necessarily mean that you're bad because there are other top candidates. It's just something didn't add up, and that's why you were rejected. So it's, it's finding that middle ground where I've learned from that failure, but also understanding that I shouldn't let this stop me it is, it has it is how I got out of that rut and managed to find myself in a PhD program under the advisor that I have now. So that was one of my lowest points, man. But coming out of that, it made me that much more stronger and that much more willing to – just try new things even if it may not end up the way i intend
0: man that's that's powerful man i appreciate you sharing that and i can't wait so the viewers can the listeners can can listen to that because that's a powerful testimony right there because coming off full bright great grades a lot like the world is, is everything seems limitless and then descending off those applications i mean it's not like you were new to this you've been applying to all this stuff for a long time so to send it out to all these universities and then you go open the mail, you're like, yo, I, I think I got in, got in, and then deny. You're like, What? I, like how does that doesn't even make sense. I'm 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 minority, exactly. I'm killing it, but then get denied it. But then you had to take a step back and to look at it objectively and to say, honestly, there was more those other qualified candidates that the programs might have been the better fit. So that's good for them. And then you and you really sat down and, and, and looked at those flaws and some of the things you had to work on. And then that kind of allowed you to get to that next level, man. And I guess, um, yeah, that, and, that, and that's, that's kind of it on that. And before we leave the, the, pre- the, the past round, could you share, what would you tell yourself, knowing what you know now, eight years ago? Is there anything you would tell yourself? Hmm. I would
1: say the biggest thing I would tell myself is I should have went for a few more opportunities. And I think that naturally, as they said, hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think there, in, in retrospect, there might have been a one or two more opportunities I should have applied for. I should have took a little bit more serious, um, and, and perhaps that would have made my journey a little bit different. But at the same time, when I reflect on that question, I don't. I think that everything has led to a certain lesson that I would not have learned any other way. Mm-hmm. So I would have, I would apply for more opportunities and um, I would have told myself don't be willing to don't be afraid to fail because that's just a natural part of it. You're going to get hit a couple of times. You're going life is going to hit you with a few haymakers, man. But you just got to keep on. You got to keep on moving, man.
0: Gotcha, you, got you, man. Said so I was a perfect, perfect first round man. Um, and now we're going to transition to presently kind of where you're at, and then also give some actionable advice for those that are potentially looking into getting to the space you're in. So explain to us now kind of where you're at and, and what you do, like what does your life look like on a day-to-day basis now?
1: Okay. So as I stated, currently I'm a second-year PhD student here at University of Southern California in the Computer Science Department. Um, I work at the Institute for Creative Technology, and my research is in artificial intelligence in general but more specifically emotion modeling. So what we do is we look at ways in which we could build computational models of human emotions to then be implemented in technology that is able to recognize as well as respond to um human emotion in a in a very interactive uh setting. So in that space the domain that we're cons- we're interested in is negotiation. So in a negotiation scenario, you have two agents. You have an object they're negotiating over, and each is trying to get what's best for them and do it in a way that's fair to the to their opponent. So, when you put a computer system in that in that space, this system not only has to be able to recognize human emotion, but also for it to effectively not negotiate with. A human being, it has to be able to follow the different protocols that we humans use when negotiating. So, what we're we're trying to understand is what does that look like? How does emotion play into that? And how do we design a computer system that can r- recognize and negotiate with you while taking all of those variables into consideration? Gotcha. And that's what I'm currently building.
0: Quick question for 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 all us non-tech non-computer people in layman's terms what is that <laughs> like you give us example paint that picture in layman's terms
1: all right so the easiest way to put it man i'm trying to we're trying to build a, a computer because I, I know we're computer talking shit. to a
0: phd student it's like <laughs> i know it's like i'm sitting here like i mean it sounds like it's really dope but i'm like i don't know what you talk talking about
1: <laughs> <laughs> nah man so so what we're trying to do is build a computer system that could teach you how to negotiate so um, and in and, and doing so, we know that people have emotions, right? So not only do we want the system to be able to recognize your emotions so it can negotiate more effectively, but we also want it to be smart in, in the way it do, does that so that you can learn the best and most appropriate negotiation method.
0: And when you say nego- negotiation, what what are, you, what are you referring to?
1: Um. Well, so the system is built more generally. So whether you're negotiating over... Uh, a car deal you know oh, or you're, you're okay trying, that type of intelligence every, like every a real negotiator. exactly
0: walk us through how was your first year in phd school because i know we talked about it over the over the summer um but how was your first first year in 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 a doctorate program because i i couldn't even fathom getting my i mean i can getting a doctorate but in robotics like t- walk us through your first year
1: Man, the first year was a it, it was a heavy hitter, bro, because one is getting adjusted to California, two is getting adjusted to research and then three is just being in a space where you're one of only 3 or 4 blacks in the program. Um so that was definitely challenging, man, and it it it, it I got hit a couple times, but they all helped develop me into who I am today. What was the most challenging part of it? I think just managing everything, you know, because at the PhD level, you have to think differently. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're constantly reading research papers. And a lot of these papers tend to be very convoluted and hard to understand. You know, <laughs> I'm not used to having to read something three, four times before I can even understand what this equation means. Um, and typically in class, you know, you run into an issue. You have the professors to help you here. You have, you have your advisor, but at the same time, your advisor doesn't have much time to sit down and walk you through every little problem. So you have to be able to strategically use your advisor for those things that are that complicated, but also f- try to figure out things on your own. So it's it's a very – PhD, I, I would say, is a, is more so a self-discovery process than it is about the research because you're learning about you. You're learning what works best for you, what time um, – what kind of studying habits work best for you when you work best during the day and all of that so it was a lot of lessons being taught at once and it was overwhelming at times
0: that's real man so what what is a typical day like for you
1: typical day I tend to be up by 7am um, get a workout in do some personal development stuff go to class uh, then hit the lab and you know, whether it's reading research papers and trying to figure out what what's the new focus I want to, or what route I want to take my research, or is actually trying to build something, some piece of software. You know, being lab until about eight nine um, on on a on an average day. On a good day, I might leave a little earlier. On a on a bad day, I might leave a lot later. So that's really how it is, and you know, go go to bed and do it all over
0: again every day for the next five years so you're just in the, lab, in the 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 lab, workout in the lab, in the lab, in the lab. so it's just constantly constant i want to talk a little bit about the how-to process because we didn't even speak on it i, mean, I don't think we have enough time right now to speak on the prices of how you how how you even found out and got into the research programs at at university of michigan and carnegie mellon but if you could specifically speak about working with um nasa like that's crazy nasa like the space agency can you tell us how that came about and how and also holistically how you were able to not only find those type of opportunities research opportunities internship opportunities but get them a a lot of it
1: was through networking and just meeting the right people sharing your goals and the ideas with them and then they putting you in touch with somebody who had those opportunities. For me to say that I've gotten any of these opportunities on my own would be a complete and utter lie. Um, whether it was from a friend who previously worked at these internships and then forwarding my resume um, or, or you know meeting somebody at a conference, it's always been through networks that has gotten me this far and has gotten me those, those different opportunities.
0: So I guess two things I got from that is one, your work sticks, not your name. And I know you're like, okay, what does that mean, Greg? Like your name, okay, Emmanuel Johnson Ford, that didn't that's not what sticks. It's more so the work that you did in the past, the work that you did, and that's what people are more inclined to reference you in, and and that's what that's how networking really works. It doesn't network oh I know Emmanuel just cause your your name is boom, it's more so I know Emmanuel due to the work that he does and he would be a good fit. And then the second thing I took from that is the the power of you sharing what did you what you wanted to do? Because even though that may seem simple, but there's a lot of us that are out here that we don't share with anybody what we really want to do.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely yeah. Those those definitely two are great points, and uh, you're absolutely right, man. Is you know the way I look at it is you can't be in all places at once, and oftentimes by you sharing your goals and um, what you're working on with other people they're then able to be your marketing or your sales people when they meet other people who have similar interests. There's been a lot of opportunities I've gotten, not because I applied for it, but because somebody else felt that I was a best fit for what um what another person was looking for. And also I would say too, man, just giving whole wholeheartedly, I think we get into this mindset where we're constantly trying to take from different relationships that we establish. But what I find is when you actually start to become beneficial to other people, you start giving freely and helping other people reach their goals, they tend to want to keep you around, they want to help you become successful. So those those are the three things I think have really helped me throughout my career.
0: Man, that's real, man. So for somebody that's on this listening right now that um may be considering a PhD, what would you tell them?
1: I would say one is is definitely possible but also realize that it's not you're not just going to get to that level just because you say you want to get a PhD <laughs> and you know it's not it's not going to be an easy journey but it's one that if you really love what you do it's going to be rewarding it's going to be fulfilling it's going to be enjoyable so to, to so with all of that in mind i would say want to figure out exactly what you want to pursue your PhD in in terms of the field in general not the specific project and then start talking to people who have been in that field and let and start building your network around there because as you talk to people, they're going to give you different insights. They're going to tell you where to look and they might even put you in touch with people who are in your field and you never know where those relationships will lead to. And then two, make sure that you take care of the necessary documents and requirements needed for these programs because No matter how much dreams and networks you have, if you don't meet the bare minimum requirement, there's very little your network can do for you. Now, granted, you might just end up having somebody that has that much influence, but it's definitely beneficial to your network and to those people who are advocating for you, for you to have met a certain standard prior to
0: applying. Man, that's powerful. That's a gem that I think is applicable for everybody in a lot of different aspects is Sometimes we might have a network or a person that could help us, but if you yourself are not ready for that help, then it's really it's really pointless. Um, let's bring exactly. it to a real world example. Like, say, if I have a friend that, um, that 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 say my friend has a dream of being in Hollywood and wants to be a director, and he's a writer, right? And I have another friend who is actually working in Hollywood and is writing for shows and stuff like that, and he he knows knows the system. But if my friend that's a writer doesn't have an online portfolio, doesn't really have anything to show, it wouldn't make any sense for me to connect him with somebody that's in that lane and be like, oh, here's my man. He got a lot of talent. If he has no he hasn't been building his portfolio to even meet the minimum of helping out. Like that's not a beneficial relationship for anybody. So that just goes to show that just because somebody might be in a position to help before you even ask, take or even if you're asking like, okay. I would like to get this help, but what some, what are some things that I need to do on my end so that it could be beneficial and it would make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think either way, it would be a beneficial connection for one person, but like you said, man, to hit that next step and really get the maximum benefit from that relationship, you have to have done your part. You have to have done your due diligence because, yeah, you're going to meet a lot of people who want to help you, but... You know, you bring a pro- portfolio where they have they really can't work with, Now, you put them in a in a
0: weird position because they want to help you, but they really can't. We're gonna to transition to um, our third round before our final round before we get to the culture change, and that is the future. Because you know, at the end of the day, I know you know where you're at personally, but I know you, and, and any every every guest we have on the show, y'all have a plan and somewhat of a vision for the future. So, could you talk 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 to our audience about? What does two thousand sixteen look look like for you? Because I know, although you're in your PhD program, you're working on a lot of other projects too. So, what does your two thousand sixteen look like?
1: Man, um, right, right, right now, I've my ultimate goal is to to be somewhere in the space of the technology entrepreneurship. So, I'm trying to get some things off the ground. Um, outside of just my research, so, well, so one of my goals is to be in England this summer, um, working on a research project. Uh, you know, cranking out some more publications um, and getting closer to defining what my exact thesis is going to be. From a research perspective, but outside of that, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, trying to do um, more side consulting on, on different technology projects, whether it be website design, app development, you know, or, or just generally helping people turn their app ideas into actual product. Um, I definitely want to get more on the consulting tip. Learn a little bit more about finance in the business world as well, and begin to build my network in that space as I'm pursuing this PhD simultaneously. So it's, it's a lot of you know taking, and then also man, just spending more time with family, get developing a closer relationship with God, and taking the time out to really enjoy where I am currently, and not focus so much on what it what what I'm going to be doing five years from now. That I fail to realize the power of just living in the present at the time.
0: You hit that on the head, man. That last point, like, own today. You know, I, I said I all my Snapchats and whatnot now. The theme for 2016, of course, is new levels, but own today. Because if you own today, your five years is going to be, look, um, way more amazing than you trying to own what's going to happen in five years. Because, honestly, we don't even know if we're going to be here in five years. And then, two, um, I think in, in an earlier pro- podcast, in a past episode with uh, Michael Johnson, he says— at the end of the day, anything could happen, and everything that you're working on currently could 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 drop, could fail. You can go right.
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> like you can go to jail, something random. You know, we, we black, we black males. We can go to jail for something random we didn't do. Um, we can get killed, or something could just happen. Life could change so quick. So if you're not grounded in kind of who you are, and goes back to what you said earlier in the podcast about knowing yourself outside of what other people may know like when you went to new england people didn't know anything about you or anything they didn't know or to care it's like if you're not comfortable with who you are you're gonna feel inferior you're gonna feel just weird and just alone so that 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 is really deep man and also too, end of the day like what do you want your legacy to be man if i want huh I would say that if, if
1: if there were anything I would want people to say at the end of the day was that I was somebody who made the best out of the situations that I presented with, regardless of what they were. And I w- hope that my life is an inspiration to kids around the world who feel as if they've been handed, dealt the wrong cards in life. They feel like they weren't provided the same opportunities they feel downtrodden they feel inferior to others because of their background that no matter where you are no matter where you start you know it's possible but not only that it's possible but understand that yo, you got to know the rules to the game because anything is possible doesn't and but it doesn't mean that anything will happen mm-hmm. and I hope that my life serves as as just another example of not only what can happen when you provide, you know, kids who come from disadvantaged background the opportunity to be great, but also um, it serves as a as another example of what dedication, hard work, and a commitment to just bettering yourself on a daily basis means. And that, and I hope that's what my legacy ends up being.
0: That's, that's powerful, man. I'll say nothing more than that, man. So that's the end of the the, the, the third round. And let's, let's get to the most exciting round, the, the fascinating round, the round that we get quick, fast snippets about what makes you you. And you know what that is. That is the culture change round. And this is a series of five rapid answer questions. And we're just going to shoot from the hip. You ready? All right, let's go. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Don't be afraid to fail. What is one of your personal habits that you can attribute to your success?
1: Constantly reviewing my performance and and, and, and you know assessing how well I did and uh, correcting for the flaws that I've I made.
0: Gotcha. Quick, quick, quick question. When you say, how do you review your performance? I mean, is there, is there you have a do you create a template or you just have a couple quick questions you ask yourself or?
1: So now being being that I'm in school, man, every semester I set goals. By the end of the semester, I review those goals to see what I've done both in my personal. My um, personal, academic, financial, you name it, I have various categories and goals that I set for myself to accomplish. So after every semester, I sit back and I review and I give myself like a, essentially a grade on how well I'm doing. And then I, I, I say, OK, well, what is it that I need to correct? What do I need to upgrade? Gotcha.
0: Boom. What is your favorite book and why? <laughs>
1: I would say I I like Steve Jobs biography and, and the reason why is because he was he was non-traditional and he was raw and he was real. And he kept very he was very transparent. I think that oftentimes when we read biographies, we read all these different things, we only get the good side. What Steve Jobs biography gave me was a good and a bad. So what it does is it showed the level of success that he has, but also it showed you what he had to give up to get there. So the question always comes in my mind, am I willing to be an a ho just to have reached his level or you know can I but and then also you realize that you don't have to be like he was to, to get to his level you know and, and being able to dissect your favorite people or your idols into the different components that they were and, f- and understand that they're human and they have flaws really kind of opened my eyes to what the future holds you know. What inspires you and
0: keeps you motivated the most?
1: In all honesty one, I would say, is my mother. And I think just looking at how hard she's worked and the fact that she doesn't complain, she just does what she needs to do, has definitely been motivational. And just wanting to be in a position where I could, you know, just tell her thank you for, for all that she's done for me up until this point, um, as well as my, my uh, three youngest sisters just being able to be that example to let them know that anything is possible. Um, but beyond that, as I stated earlier, my goal is to leave an impact on Israel and show kids that if you really have a dream and you take the time to grind, and grinding isn't just for working, it's also networking, understanding how the game is played, meeting different people, and also using the resources that you have to get where you want to get at. Um, if you're willing to do all of those things and really push yourself to the next level, anything is possible. It's
0: hmm. powerful, man. The fifth question, and the last question is, if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? Man. <laughs> um honestly,
1: bro, I probably I it, as much as I want to say man I, I'll do I'll start this policy, man I'll probably just take pictures in the White House to and pinch <laughs> myself, make sure kind <laughs> of myself, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't know what to do, man. I, I I have to take a picture and keep it, you know, and um, uh, probably take, you know, walk walk people through like a a, a tour, a virtual tour of the White House to make sure it's
0: actually happening. Just in case they kick me out, I can say I actually did it, you know. All the time, and but the thing is though, you have to have the most epic caption in the world, like President. Like, what does that caption look like? Do you go captionless? Do you say Pound White House or I met like we made it or like oh, what, what do? You...
1: I feel like man, just having a picture as president <laughs> is all you need. No captioning. You know I mean? your White House, you know, probably put my my crib, you know, and keep it moving. Like, what else do I need to say at that point,
0: man? That's how I look at it. All time, all time, man. So, uh, one last question because, you know, at the end of the day, the theme, I call myself the culture change agent. All the stuff that we do, what you're doing, you're changing the culture, you're changing the dynamic. So, um, the last question, a little deep, um, and <clears throat> this is outside of the culture change round, is if you could change one thing about society. Most specifically, the African-American culture. What would it be and why?
1: I would say our overemphasis on money, man. And and the reason being is when you take money out of the equation, you find that people have no other reason to pursue these things that they don't care about. Ooh. you know, because once money gets eliminated, why are you going to go to that job that you hate? And, and that's when people start to, to to sit back and say, "Man, what am I doing with my life?" You know, this materialistic culture and this capitalistic culture we live in has has constantly pushed us towards um a, a heavy emphasis on money, on living this lavish lifestyle that we can't afford. And you know, I'm not one to go into to depth to say, "Well, it's, it's to." And blame anybody, but I think once we stop focusing so much on that and really understand that when we're passionate about something, when we truly learn how that thing is the game is played, the money is gonna come so if if I could eliminate the the necessity of money for a short period of time for people to kind of find out what they wanna what they really care about, you know, I think that'd be the most beneficial thing
0: that wraps up this episode, and before we go, man. I got two things. One, could you get? Could you provide where people can find more information about you, getting in contact with you for our listeners?
1: Um, man, I have my website exjohnson. At I'm sorry, I have my website exjohnson.com. Um, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, ej underscore the man. Um, add me on Facebook. Shoot me an email, Emmanuel Johnson six zero nine at gmail.com. I'm easily I'm easy to be reached, man. I'm not. I'm not that hard.
0: <laughs> Guys, we'll have all that information on the show notes, man. And before we let him go, I just want to thank thank him for the bottom of my heart for giving giving us an hour plus of his time, his resources, advice, his, his thoughts, his failures, his successes. I mean, it really means a lot. You're, you're, like, you're like my brother, man. And um, I definitely think the, the world is going to be able to get a lot from this interview, man. So thank you for being on this show, bro.
1: No problem, man. Thanks for having me, brother. No
0: doubt. So, as you all can tell, this is the end of this episode. It's been a phenomenal episode. I pray that you got some jewels, some nuggets that you can apply to your life. Or you just learned a cool story about a young man that had a 2.3 GPA in high school. And now he is a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California, as well as a Fulbright Scholar. And that's just powerful. It's very, very powerful. So, Thank you again. I need you to do three things before we end off this call. I mean, not this call, this podcast. The first being, if you haven't already, please leave, rate, or review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe. If you're listening via SoundCloud, please subscribe on SoundCloud too. Number two, please, please, please share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it. And number three, next week, I'm actually going to read through the format for The last episode of this season, and I'll actually bring on Travis Jackson, CEO of HBCU Pride Nation, and he will actually be interviewing me. So, if you have any questions as far as my life, entrepreneurship, podcasting, any questions you have about the first season, submit them to greg at greggreggyhill.com. Send me all your questions, I'll make sure I answer them, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Gregory Hill, Instagram at Gregory Hill, Facebook Gregory E. Hill. Or just go to the website, leave a comment. So definitely send me your questions. I'll make sure I answer one of the question and answer portion. And like I said, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your support this season. It's been phenomenal next season. We're going to take it to a whole nother level. So just bear with us. Bear with us as we continue to grow. So as it's custom to do, I need you to do one thing. I know you're like, Greg, you just asked me do four things. What's that one thing, Greg? That one thing is changed the freaking culture. Good night.